I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. I'm Effie Parks, your host. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for joining me. I had the opportunity to talk to my pal, Sean, from the Two Disabled Dudes recently. So please head over to whatever podcast app you prefer and check out the Two Disabled Dudes podcast in general, but to hear my little conversation that I got to have with Sean. Also, the Disorder Channel has dropped a new film called Life After Diagnosis Day. It features uh, several of my favorite advocates of all time, including Jennifer Sills and Melissa Hioko. Sorry if I said that wrong, Melissa. Go check it out. It's an awesome film of kind of like the where are they now. Also, Pain Points is that funny comedy show I've mentioned a couple times. They're like five minute tops episodes and they usually just pick a topic and joke about it for a while. Has also, some of my favorite advocates on it, like Patrick James Lynch and Kay Weaver and Billy Short. Anyways, go check it out. They actually released two of those episodes on YouTube. So if you don't have a Fire or a Roku, you can go get a little taste of it over there on YouTube, the Disorder Channel. So to today's episode, I'm so excited. I have a friend on the show, a neighbor on the show, a fellow rare mom on the show. She's also an author, and I'm so excited to introduce you to her if you haven't already met her and to let you know a little bit about her book. It's really, really special. Uh, she's one of those moms that's further along in the journey than some of us listening. Her, her child is an adult now, so she has a very, very, very important perspective especially to the parents who are a little further behind. Anyways, she wrote an exquisite book and let's see, it's called More of Everything, How I Became a Better Parent to My Child with Extreme Special Needs by Lifting My Emotional Burdens. You have to get this book. I'll leave all the, all the links in our episode notes today. Please enjoy my conversation with Syngap Mom, Janie Reed. Hello, JR. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, it is my absolute pleasure. Interestingly enough, you and I met in like a, what, an angel aid kind of mom's retreat thing online during COVID. Yes. And you said Syngap in when you were introducing yourself. And I think I messaged you and I was like, hello. And, you know, we met a couple times after that. And I met you in person, uh, finally, at the Syngap conference last December in Nashville. So that was very cool. Yeah. So it's just an interesting road. And 
Oddly enough, you are also my neighbor. We live in Seattle. So that is so super cool. It really is. And I think you knew Mike pretty well by the time, like when I said Syngap, right? You already knew a lot about, because most people don't know much about Syngap. So having you jump on that was really, um, was really great. Yeah, you were probably like, who is this crazy stalker lady? Why does she know who I am? <laughs> no, it's like such a lonely road, right? You're like, oh, somebody knows something about this. This is, let's go. Let's go, friend. Okay. Well, so for anyone who doesn't know, Syngap obviously is such a machine in so many ways, but it also produces these advocate, these parents who are so highly motivated and so deeply involved and it's one of the most beautiful things to witness and it's so inspiring and everyone should follow their lead. But JR here, my guest today, my neighbor and friend, is also an author and she's a mom who's a little further ahead in the journey than a lot of the families that listen to this show. At least half of them. Her son is an adult living with Syngap and she's recently released such a gorgeous book called More of Everything and I've read a lot of rare disease books and I've read a lot of I searched high and low for books before I started this podcast. And especially before I started this podcast, I couldn't find one that I did not want to just throw out the window. There weren't a lot of books available that really spoke to me. And this one especially spoke to me. And I was telling JR before our interview that I feel like I've said almost all the words that you put on the page. That is such a it's like so nice for me to hear that because I I guess my I tried to put myself on the page and put what I really thought because a lot of times we can't say what we really think right and so I really tried to just take back all the editing you do all the self-editing all the self-censoring you do and just say what I really was thinking and how my thoughts have changed over time and so to hear that it it resonated with you it was really it really makes me feel good. One of the reasons it resonated with me so much is because of the storytelling aspect of the format. You know, I love a good story, but you did your book kind of like the vignettes, right? Like each chapter is a vignette. Right. It was an experience. It was a memory. It was a moment in time in being a mom and raising your boys. And I think that it's so much more luxurious to read stories when you can put yourself in the setting, right? Right. Okay, let's do a little intro since I sort of forgot that part because we were just talking about your book. But tell us uh, a little bit about you and your family and your boys. And then I actually kind of do want to just sort of break down your book a little with you. Yeah. So JR, that's me. I am. I live in Seattle. I'm married. I have three children. They're all adult sons now, all adult men. And Joey is our second child. So I was a scientist. I stopped working with my first child and decided, okay, I'm I'm at the point where I might as well just have my kids pretty close together and then go back to work. So I had Joey second and then he had delays and we were like, well, should we have a third or not? So there's a whole sort of genetics story in there. But we ended up having our third child without knowing what was going on with Joe. And then and then I went back to work a little bit part-time in science, uh, or not a little bit, I went back to work part-time once the kids were in school. But Joey's behaviors and stuff were so difficult that I couldn't really, I couldn't really sustain that. And so eventually Joey's behaviors, his self-injury and aggression were so great that we ended up having him go to a group home, which was really, really good for him and really, really devastating for me. And I spent then a few years just trying to come to terms with that and be the best mom I could to the other two boys who were still at home. And now they're all out of the house. They're all adults. 
So I found that writing was a way that I could kind of try to go back and say what what happened and who am I and how how am I okay with everything and that's what I did. That's what the book is about for me. When did you start writing? Like as I was reading your book, I was like, did she journal? Like is this how she remembered these moments because when you started telling these stories, I started remembering my stories, right? Which is a natural thing that happens, but I was like, it's hard for me to get those memories if I don't have like something concrete. So were you writing something down to remember this stuff later to have as like this content or did it just kind of flow through you when you started writing? Yeah, I mean, certainly I've like written on scraps of paper and I have about 30, you know, journals that are a quarter of the way written. And, you know, like I have I have a lot of stuff like that. But when I really started writing was when I only had one kid left at home and he was in high school, I decided to take a writing class, like a fiction class. And I don't know why. I just thought, I, I don't know why. Who knows why we do these things? I did. <laughs> and of course, I can't I can't write fiction. Like, I can't write a single, I cannot think of a single thing that didn't happen. So I just started writing things that had happened. <laughs> and so that's how it started was I just on a lark took a fiction class and then I couldn't stop writing about what had actually happened. So... Mm. This is a totally separate episode because it would require so many questions and really delving into it. But you touched on the fact that Joey lives in a group home. And I know so many parents kind of maybe like stopped breathing for a second when you said that. Yeah. And want to know more and want to know how old he was and what you felt about that and how you came to that decision, which we can definitely talk a little bit about. And we can also have another episode if you all want to hear JR talk about that decision that she made, but maybe just kind of a sprinkle of it for now. In his early years, he he just wasn't developing and he was really sweet. And then he started kind of biting on the back of his hand and he wasn't, he couldn't hurt himself. And I, I couldn't get him to stop doing it. Like I knew that was going to be bad later. You know, when he was three and four doing that, I knew that A, he wasn't hurting himself. B, he was trying to communicate to me or you know, maybe he was trying to communicate, maybe maybe his hand itched, you know, like who knows. And I knew that later that would be difficult, right? Like, you know that that once you're an adult, that's not it. That's not a behavior you can really sustain. But no matter what I tried, I wasn't really able to get him to stop doing that. And then as he aged, as he was in a school situation that was really stressful for him, it just got worse and worse. And he, he got to the point where his hands were bloody and infected and and I was, you know, the doctors would tell me, oh, well, keep him from biting his hands, you know. So I was holding him down on his on the bed with a blanket between us. And, you know, like it was really bad. And and he would fight me, you know, he would fight me. And so we tried to get funding many, many times and weren't getting it. If your kid's on any kind of meds, you have a nurse line that you can call. And so I would call and they'd always be like, are you safe? And I was always like, yeah, I'm safe. Yeah, yeah, I'm safe. I just don't know what to do, right? And then finally one day, they were like, are you safe? And I was like, no, I'm not safe. And it was that was the point. Like, that's a that's kind of like a go, no-go situation, which I wasn't really understanding, you know, as far as getting services. And so this is my understanding of it anyway. Like, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a DDA person. Like, I, I don't really know what was happening. But that really seemed like it to me, that as soon as I said I wasn't safe, he wasn't safe, that they hopped to it and found, they said, oh, by the way, there's actually some money right now. Like we have this really short window of money, so let's get you some. And I was like, all right. And then they wouldn't give us money for in-home. And so they gave us money for out-of-home placement. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Again, like I didn't know what to do, right? Like, he, like we had gone through all the babysitters. 
I've always trained, I've always hired and trained babysitters. And like, there was no one, there was no one I could hire and train anymore. Like nobody would do it. And because it was too hard a job. Right. And so, yeah, that's the point at which we tried it. And I was like, and, and the thing is, when you try it, you can always bring them home. Like you can say like, okay, that wasn't working. So it wasn't a one way ticket. You know, it wasn't a forever thing. So I said, yes. But then after he left, four, three, four days later, he'd stop biting his hands. So. Wow. It's almost laughable to think of the enormity that a mom and a child is living with, you know, at home in dealing with these types of behaviors and being told over and over, you know, what to do or how to how to calm the situation. And it's just so much bigger than people on the outside can really imagine, including maybe some of the professionals who aren't really there, right, day to day. Well, right, and uh, and so of course we went to lots of appointments, right? And he was always fine in the appointment, and then we'd go, we'd we'd drive down. I don't know if you've been to, well, just imagine wherever your doctor is. You've driven about six to eight blocks away, and then your child starts like screaming, kicking the back of the seat, biting, you know, like just like throwing a fit, right? And so it's like. Yeah, you just sat in the corner and played with your toy for an hour. Literally every time. That's literally what happens every time. It is so annoying. Oh, my gosh. So the key, the key is to get somebody who will come out to your house and watch. And so at, at, at some point we did. We did qualify for this, like, it's called BMAC. I think BMAC, this BMAC guy came out. And, and it was really bad. And for three full days, like, I remember the first day he watched us for like three hours or something. And then I turned to him before he goes and I'm like, what can I do? And he's like, I'm not done watching. And I'm like, oh, I just wanted to throw stones at him. You know, I'm like, come on, you've got to give me something. Right. And so he had to watch us for three full sessions before he would tell me anything. So anyway, it's, uh, but then, but then he did tell me things and then it did help. So, so shout out to the, shout out to the great BMAC guys. Guys and gals. Awesome. Okay. Well, we'll have to figure that out. But yeah, thank you for that great piece of advice there at the end where you said this doesn't have to be a forever decision. If it's not working for you or your family or the or the child, like you can always change it again. Yeah. It's not permanent. And I think that's a that's a good reminder to have, especially with all the extreme anxiety and all of the feelings that probably come along with a decision like that. So thank you. You know, I think about parents like you, I, I talk about it often, the ones with the older kids, right, who didn't have the networks that we have now available at their fingertips, like online, at least, and also didn't have the diagnosis until later. What was that like when you finally got that with Joey? And how did that change it? Yeah, Joey was in six, was 16 when we when we got the genetic diagnosis. And I'm, a, you know, I have a I have a degree in human genetics, right? Like I, I understand genetics and I was just waiting. I was just biding my time until whole XM trio got cheap enough for us to just pay for it because I was pretty sure that was going to help. We'd had at least four different rounds of genetic testing that came up without anything. And Joey was born in 2001. Syngap 1 wasn't known to be the cause of an autosomal dominant neurodevelopmental disorder until... 2009. And so anything we did before that wasn't going to work. And the things we did right after that didn't work either because Syngap wasn't yet. Like SRF has done a great job of getting Syngap on not only epilepsy panels, but also ID panels, autism panels. And so that's kind of like the first line. Anyone, any any kiddo who goes to see their neurologist is, is more likely to get one of those panels than the full whole exome trio. And so as far as the genetic testing, it's cheaper, it's more efficient, it, 
it kind of targets what is likely to be the case. So I don't know. I'll be happy when those panels are super outdated. Right. And we're just <laughs> like, I think they're already uh, dinosaurs. Yeah, they are. They are. Well, I mean, I start. I was in science before the human genome was was sequenced. So right before before there was even enough computer space to hold the information in the human genome. So I have a little different viewpoint of it. So yeah, yes, it will. They will be. Yes, they will be uh, obsolete, but not quite yet. Like we still we still have a, a generation of people who are going to benefit from it. So. Of course, Syngap one gets a parent with your background in the in the, in the <laughs> fold. Like every time I like see a new one, I'm like, of course they're Syngapians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. That's I know, funny. I know. It's it's frustrating, <laughs> right? But see, for us, whole exome trio is what really diagnoses us. But for some, for some, it's really a karyotype, and almost nobody does karyotypes anymore. So that you know, that ring disorders are not getting their due right now because because people have moved on to other testing techniques. So anyway, just a shout out for genetics in general. Okay. So you found SRF, you got this diagnosis. It was stunning. It was stunning to me that the, that the genetic report came back with one finding that was definitive. Like I was sure there'd be like three, four, five, you know, findings of uncertain significance and that we'd have no idea what was happening. Right. That's what I thought. So to get that and then to find, and then to read about the biology, like, of course, I went and read primary papers about it. And to read about the biology of it, it was like, I just, I just cried, really. Like, for one thing, all the times people said to me, oh, he'll learn, you know, he'll learn to eat when he's hungry. It's like, oh, no, he won't. This is a, he, he has a biology that, that doesn't allow his synapses, certain synapses to change. Like synapses are supposed to change. If you use them more, they're supposed to get stronger. If you use them less, they're supposed to get weaker. That specifically does not happen with some of his, I'm not going to say all, but with some of his synapses. That is the most beautiful, easily understood example, like molecular insight into not learning that I can imagine. That is specifically not learning. That is not adapting. And so, no, he wasn't going to learn to eat when he was hungry. No, he wasn't going to learn to tolerate your school day schedule. You know, he just wasn't. And and so the things we did, like all he did was complain louder. So all, all he ever learned to do was complain faster, complain louder. And that was hard for him too, because he didn't really have the coordination to do that kind of expressive communication. So he got better at, at saying no in ways that we could believe him. Oh, that's so powerful. I feel that. I feel that in so many ways. And it's just such a relief to be able to have that explanation and to not beat yourself up as much as you've always had to beat yourself up to get to that next level or to get to that next little tiny triumph at home with the thousands and thousands of hours of the things you're told to do for your kid. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's also it also shows like this inherent flaw in our early education or early intervention system, right? You're supposed to get this early intervention so that you get better. It's like, well, what if your kid's not getting better? But they still need the early intervention, right? So they don't get worse or so they have something, so they have services. And so the whole early intervention so that you won't need help later, the whole early intervention as long as you're improving, it's just such a, it's such a biologically, it's, it's set up for the privilege of the kids that will actually improve. Yeah, it's set up for those kids who get to use that, that common quip of they'll catch up. Yeah. 
yeah, it's set up for them. It definitely needs a facelift. And I was laughing through one of the parts of your book because you were talking about when I think you were at early intervention and the therapist asked you, what do you want Joey to do? Oh, God, yeah. And I just laugh because like I still get asked that all the time in whatever assessment that we're having. And it's like, well, what do you think I want Ford to do? I mean, let's be honest. What do you think that I want Ford to do? Sure. I'm at the point where I know what he can do and what he can't do and what he'll probably do and blah, 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 blah. But like, do you really want the real answer to that question? Yeah. It isn't set up for kids like ours, just like even the therapies aren't. I mean, no, almost no therapy I ever took forward to before the age of five was worth any of my time. Yeah. And quite frankly, there needed to be more than one therapist on Ford because one couldn't do the job physically. Right. Like, it's just not set up for disability. Right. Right. Well, there's one thing I put in my book, which I kind of feel like needs to be my second book, which is, um, I just spoke about it very briefly, but it's like the thing that I did when I wasn't in fear, like really early on, like he just wasn't seeing, right? And so I think I talk about him... um, like wearing stripes, for instance, and then putting a blanket over my face. Do, do I talk about that in there? Oh, yeah. That was actually pretty funny. I was like, really? Only um, only a scientist would be taking this so far that she's literally like checking everything off her box. Well, but the point is, that is what I did. And I'm pretty sure that helped. And no one has ever backed me up on that. And so and so it's like the therapy, like when you say none of the therapies before five worked, it's like, yeah, because the therapies were the wrong therapies, right? They were like, our therapists aren't understanding what development actually looks like and what our kids actually look like. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and you were right. I mean, Joey did notice you, right? Like you found, you found moments where because of what you were doing and this new thing you were trying was doing something. Right. So there was evidence that your funny thing that I can only picture in my mind. Yeah. Was was making a difference. Yeah. Let's talk about the format of your book really quick. So, again, I said they kind of go in these vignettes of moments in time. That's part one. And that's about two thirds of the book is vignettes. And they start at when he's age four. And then there's one. They they end at like 1920 and 21. So at 21. What I love, especially and what I think is going to be really valuable to the readers after they listen to this and buy your book is the the lists that you make after each story, right? Like the reflection that you've had and the lessons that you've learned and the wisdom that you gleaned from each of these stories that you tell. Right. Really helps people frame. It gives them ideas of how to reframe things, right? And I think that's really, really useful. And it's really only with a lot of distance that I can say some of that stuff. There'll be a vignette of some, they're all fairly short. Some are longer than others. And then there's a section called Looking Back. And some of that is... Stuff that if I was a better writer, maybe if I had a better story, I could have like shoved that in somehow. But a lot of it is just like I just wanted to summarize. Right. Sometimes you just like want to summarize something that's burning in your chest to say. And so that's sort of what the looking back is, is like just something I wanted to summarize about that time and maybe what was going on. And then the lessons that my takeaways Those are really specific lessons to me. And I'm a little bit of a of a, you know, unusual person. And so I don't expect everyone to have those be lessons for them. But like I said, my whole goal in this book was to show who I am and see show you how I think. And so that is why those are there. 
I know how different we are. And I found almost all of it to be very similar um, to the way that I think about things and the way that I kind of would summarize it. And so I actually think that I saw way more of myself in your thoughts than I expected to. And I think that a lot of parents also will. Whether it was very specific to you or not, I think it just goes to show how similar our situations really are and how our emotional path in all of this is so unique that I think you'd be surprised to know how many people would actually completely identify with with those things that you made. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, it's going to be some of the isolation, right? Some of the isolation is just so it's so common. Yeah. And I also appreciate that you did list it out because we're busy and like, I liked it being like that. I liked it just being very direct (laughs) (laughs) because like, ain't nobody got time for that. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, So as a rare mom, I thought that was very efficient and I appreciated it. Oh yeah. Good. Okay. Well, so that's part one and that's two thirds of the book, but then part two is just things I just couldn't, I just couldn't really get vignettes around it. So I talk about acceptance and frustration because especially sort of medical the medical establishment frustrations and so those two are like obviously really long journeys for anyone any family any person any family dealing with rare disease or any any sort of intense medical journey right and so that's what part two is about and then part three introduces coaching and so I, I went back to the vignette form. I had two vignettes that were in the first part and I pulled them out and put them in the coaching part because they really show my thought processes and how I was like very intentional about what I was thinking and what I was asking myself, what the what my choice of words were, because that ended up having a large effect on me at a time when nothing else was helping. So at a time when I actually, there weren't babysitters that I could, you know, well, maybe there were some babysitters, but there weren't enough babysitters, right? Like when he was six, I still had babysitters. When he was 11, it was getting really hard. When I, when he was six, I just really wasn't sleeping, you know? And so I would pay a babysitter $200 so I could go somewhere and then I'd go to a hotel and then I'd sleep, right? Like, and then, and then God forbid that you're near an elevator or some, some, you know, high school kids are running around on the floor because you're just trying to sleep. So anyway, I, I got off track, but the, the coaching is what I do now. And it's, I, I don't think everybody needs a parent coach, but I do think everybody needs to examine their own thoughts to see which ones are really devastating to them. I saved a couple that I wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, please. In one part, you said, I felt like a martyr when Joey was young, and it felt good for a short time, a real badge of loyalty and hard work, but it's unsustainable and it's isolating. And I see that so much in our families across the world. And it's not necessarily a conscious thing. Um, And I think it's I think it's a battle thing, right? It's a battle. And it's also cultural. Like people people don't know what to say. And the nicest thing to say is to make you out to be a martyr. And every everyone wants, you know, I mean, just look at look at all the all the stories of breast cancer and like all the stories of being a good mom are sacrifice. All all our story, all our regs to riches stories are a young boy who has a single mother who gave everything for him and now he's a success like that like that is the american rags to riches story right and it's not 
reasonable. It's not reasonable. What about her? What about like you shouldn't? What about all the people who didn't start with nothing and are just like trying hard every day? So the martyrdom thing, it's very hard to get away from it in our society because that is the way people show that they care is by telling you how good you are and telling you that you're the only one who can do this and telling you that you can do it without help because that's because you're this amazing martyr basically. And it's isolating because it others you. It like, it takes them out of the equation. They don't need to come help you now. And I love Effie. I love your, your graphic on how to help someone. I mean, that is, that is so spot on. Thank you. I was going to say this martyrdom of uh, the rags to the riches story, like you said, is, yeah, it coincides with also not being able to ask for help. It's such a common thread and families are debilitated. They literally cannot ask for help. And it goes along with this, you know, whole ideology of like they have to be the savior. They have to do it. They're strong. People keep telling them they're strong. And that their kid is so special and that no one else knows their kid. And it's like, yeah, and I need somebody else to know them. Like, I need someone else. Like, how much time do we spend every day trying to understand our our different children, you know? And we need somebody else to get in there and try to understand them, too. Mm-hmm. It's really complicated. And I think that it actually just has to be an active switch and a choice and a direction that you take. Because it's it's life or death as a caregiver. And... I feel confident in saying that in many ways. It is life or death. It, it also comes from early on when things are hard but doable. I got very, you know, sort of perfectionist, right? And I wanted things a certain way and I wanted it like this. And no, you're not good enough to do this with this person, you know, with my precious child. And I, I wasn't giving enough. I wrote. I had too much control of the situation. And then as I was, as the job became harder and harder, as the sleep depri- deprivation got more and more intense as the behaviors got more and more intense it all gets harder and so then as you're unwinding the perfectionism it's you're just like trying to survive and so like there's a story in there about uh, my son like taking my son into the pharmacy when he didn't want to go and it's like I didn't have someone that could watch him I tried I I did have somebody the day before I did go to get the medicine the day before they were out. They didn't have like they were supposed to have the medicine. They didn't like this happens. Right. You go to the pharmacy. They don't have it. Like sometimes that happens. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the way the world works. So then the next day I take my son in and he doesn't like it. And we have this bad experience. And um, and I just don't know who can help me. Literally don't know who can help me. I probably could have left him in the car. But then, like, I personally know someone who used to leave her kids in the car and the police came and CPS came and, you know, it's like, yeah, you shouldn't leave your kids in the car. Well, my son was 11. He looked old enough. You know, he probably would have stayed on his iPad. But had he not, I have no idea where he would have gone. And he probably would have gone on the street. He probably would have gone to find a bus. Like, he could have gone on a bus. You know, it's like, you see what I mean? It's like doing the easy thing is it's like... The thing that might go wrong is just too bad. It's too big. It's the thing that you're going to be on the news for. Exactly. It is. And let's actually talk about this story a little more because uh, I think that it is one of the greatest stories in the book because it is such a common daily existence for our families in not just going to the pharmacy, but in literally leaving the house anywhere which is one of the reasons that everything is so isolating and then just ends up being kind of like this big hole of darkness. But you 
have to go through so much, including just mental preparations and planning and timing and getting a person ready that can't dress themselves or whatever to finally make this huge journey outside, across the sidewalk, into the vehicle, bring all the equipment that you need, be somewhere on time, and then to not have the ability to just drive through or to run in or to just have all of these conveniences that are so common for most people. But you have to bring this situation into a public setting and you have to use all of your powers to make sure that it doesn't go completely into a giant storm. And one, you don't really control that, but you can help to at least notice it ahead of time, to at least run an abandoned ship. All of that is so incredibly exhausting, but it also takes so much skill and so much calmness and so much awareness. And then you're just trying to do a regular thing. And then it can frustrate you if you think about it that way. And it just can tumble and tumble and tumble and grow into this big monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you finally make it into this pharmacy and you get what you need and Joey gets frustrated and it gets bad. And so you're getting him back to the safe zone. And then there's Deborah, who's making you feel like everything you're doing is wrong and that you should be ashamed and embarrassed and that your kid is not happy and you must be hurting him. And what's going on? Why are you such a bad mom? When you're literally a superhuman Herculean right. <laughs> like being taking care of the entire planet in this moment and someone scoffs at you and it can just make you never want to leave again. Yeah, it's really true. For people who have younger kids, I don't know if you'll feel this yet, but certainly people who have any kid who's like pretty strong and aggressive, it's like when your kid fights you, of course you're trying to protect your child. Of course you're trying to do everything to calm them down. But like, I'm still a person. I'm still a person who is in the animal kingdom, you know, I still have all the instincts and hindbrain and amygdala that, that all the other primates do, right? So I still am this person who is trying to respond and trying not to get hurt myself and trying to, right? And so then you have all this cortisol and all this adrenaline and you're just trying to make good decisions and it's just... Like getting him back to the car, having him be like calm, like you can t like you can tell with my son. My son does not hide who he is. He was pissed as anything, and then he was calm. And he puts his head, he puts his forehead on the window. He looks out the the side window. You know, he's like, great, this is what I wanted. You know, we're back. Oof, that story was just like really powerful, and it was relatable in so many ways. Like I said, just like the efforts of getting anywhere. Also, I have a reflection in there, like, you know, what should I have done differently? There's no practical thing I think I could have done differently. And I didn't trust anybody before. I didn't have hope after, you know, it's like I, I felt ashamed that this was my life, not, not guilty that I had done the wrong thing. I also like your distinction and you, you kind of go in a little bit about language and how important the language that we use is and how we identify our feelings and our emotions for what they really are yeah. and what they really mean. And I think that's a really important practice. It reminded me of that book I talk about a lot, Emotional Agility, in just really identifying them, letting them be what they are and not being necessarily controlled by them or even really completely guided. Right. I think as a child, I just thought, oh, you have an emotion. You need to fix it. That, that's, a, that's something that you have to fix with an action. 
and it's not true. So like a lot of people listening, their affected kiddo isn't the only one in the house. And Joey has two brothers, one older and one younger. So that dynamic is really important, right? And it's a constant worry and it's also constant joy. And it, it also has like this whole different existence in the household, right? And there's that guilt and shame in there too. I know that. But one of the things you said in your book that resonated with me and that uh, with the boys was one of your sons... Thomas, who notices obvious strengths in his big brother, seeing his six-year-old joy through the eyes of a four-year-old is thrilling to me. And it hits me that Thomas is the only person I know that expects the world to contain a person like Joey. And I wonder when he'll see more of what Joey can't do. I wonder how I can foster his delightful and innocent perspective within myself. That is just one of the gifts of Thomas, you know, like he's such a gift and that's one of them. Yeah, these siblings, I love I love when you said that they don't know a world without people like them in it. And it's so true. And it is just something extra unique about the siblings, right? Is like they grow up in this household. So they see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they also carry it with them, right? But I think it's so much more normalized for the kids now, more so, because even the parents before you, those kids didn't stay at home really ever. And if they did, it wasn't talked about. They weren't in school. It was invisible. Right. Where it was a totally different experience for your kids and all of the ones after because they're, it's a part of their life. Yeah. Well, my kids now, they see Joey sometimes, not a lot. I mean, they don't even live in town. So sometimes they, sometimes they see him. Sometimes they, a lot of times they don't. But we I always talk about, about him. You know, I'm always like, oh, Joey and I did this. Joey and I did that. Oh, Joey. Remember that thing he used to do? He like brought it up again or, you know. It's it's really interesting. And my kids remember the funniest things. Like one of Joey's strengths is that he he just has this huge sense of humor and he will crack himself up. And so he would he used to say or sign. I mean, he's he's pretty much nonverbal, but he used to tr use word approximations or signs and he would come up with some three noun series of things to, to communicate. And he'd just like keep doing it and try to get somebody else to do it. And then when somebody else would do it, he would just crack up. Joey reminded me a lot of Ford during those types of stories. So similar. Yeah. Including like the self comedic like sense of humor. Yeah. That yeah. cracks themselves up and then just getting obsessive with things. They really reminded me of each other. It's so funny. Uh, yeah, I definitely like saw my life in those moments for sure. These kids are so similar and they just appreciate the simple things in such a fun way. Yeah, it helps you know them. You're like, I see you. I see how delighted and, you know, you are delightful. You are delighted. You know, you're noticing the world around you. You're seeing something that looks out of place and think it's hysterical. Just out of curiosity, did either of the boys, were they kind of led towards a compassionate type of career or anything like that? Not really, except that I'll tell you too. I mean, it's just who they are. Like, no, not in a career. Definitely not. They're sort of math science engineer guys. But my older one, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I he's He was always, he was doing stuff online when he was in high school. And one of the things he would do is be a, a peer counselor. So there's like some website you can go to and just be a peer counselor. And you can say if you want to listen or if you want to talk or, you know, if you want to be a sort of a helper or a listener. And he used to do that a lot. And just talk to people about what was bothering them. And they're just people he didn't know and he wasn't going to know again. It was just a, you know, it was just a room to try to 
help people through their problems or listen or whatever. And he's, he's really a deep, emotionally deep soul, that one is. And then the younger one, when he was in elementary school, you know how they'll give kids their superpowers. They'll like sort of notice the kid and say what his superpower was. Every time his was inclusion. And they said, every kid who walks into, into the room, they stop in the doorway. They look at where the other kids in the room are. Then they go hang up the stuff in their cubby and they go sit with their friends. They're like, not this kid. He rushes in, puts the stuff down. He plops down next to anyone. Like he never... He never checks it out to see where people are. He can hang with anyone, and he always notices people who are on the fringe and brings them into the conversation and brings them into it. Like, hey, why don't you play this game with us? Or, hey, you know, like he he just was Mr. Inclusivity as far as being a connector of people. Mm, that's beautiful. And more important than any career. I mean, that is a, yeah. that is a really special existence. Yeah. So that's just kind of who they are as far as they are very emotionally aware of people. Yeah. It's really beautiful to see. I see it even happening already, like a young teeny child. My daughter does the same thing. It's just a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah. Actually, can I tell you one thing I didn't put in the book, but maybe I should have? My oldest, after Joey had left and I was still very, very sad, he said, mom, our family is a group project. Oh my gosh. He said, every group project I've been in, I've been with people I love. I've had amazing ideas. He says, every group project I've been in has gone differently than I thought it would. It's gone differently than my idea. He said, our family's a group project and you have to let it. Joey's move was better for him. It was better for every single one of us. And it's not what you wanted, but it's better for everybody and you have to let it be. I just wrote that down. That is so profound and yeah, for a young man to have deduced it to that and to understand it and to appreciate it for that is just really astounding. Well, it is because then I can just see myself as this person, you know, grasping to my view, you know, my original view of what I wanted and basically throwing a tantrum like I didn't want totally. this. You know? <laughs> totally. <It's> like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. It really it really reduced me to like, wow, what what am I holding on yes. to? This is actually this is actually a past me that I'm holding on to, not like the person I want to totally. be. Totally. And also goes back to that hero's like martyrdom, right? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent the martyrdom. When we say we'll do anything for our child, we think of all these feats of strength and sacrifice within the within the typical family structure, you know. That's what we mean. We don't mean we'll do anything. We don't mean we don't mean we'll give them up. You know, we don't mean we'll let them live outside of our home. We mean we'll do all these other things to keep them in our home. And what's really beautiful about that, too, and I, you also mentioned this, and we talk about this a lot now, even just like, you know, regular parenting, but it's definitely different of modeling. Right. And that yeah. that moment when your son says that to you, that should be like such a fulfilling thing, because everything that you had modeled up until that point created this person who could who could do that right and yeah who could do that for me and who I would listen to right like he wasn't somebody on the street that I was like forget you I don't care what you say and that's another reason of asking for help right like we have to break these family systems we have to model to our kids how important it is to encircle community and to ask for help when you need it because it's for the group project right and it's to it's to enrich the lives of everyone that you care about. And when you aren't modeling that it's okay to ask for help, this cycle just continues and it goes through the families like every single time. Right. 
Okay, there is also a couple fun stories where you finally, I don't know if you decided or if you finally just came upon them, but your extreme uh, parenting sister friends that you found. Oh, yeah. And I love so I love a few things that you said about them. You know, you obviously everyone can connect with this who's found a rare mom or dad friend. We cheer each other on when one has a victory, especially one most folks would not appreciate. When we gasp at behaviors, it is at those of unhelpful people, not the behaviors of our kids. Yes. And we have each other's backs. So tell me about finding kind of that community and what it changed for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I tried a few things. I tried autism support groups. They did not weren't you know a fit because of the severe intellectual disability my son has it just had nothing you know there's just like no similarities at all I was told for a long time he was probably going to catch up so I wasn't in a in an intellectual disability group either right because they weren't saying like if I'd known he had sync up at that point I would have found my people faster so I didn't find people for a long time. I sort of stumbled into a group. I had a a friend who's, it's typically like, who did I know? I knew the people on my block. I knew the people in my kids' schools. And so one mom who was the friend of my older son, she had an even older son who is on the autism spectrum. And she invited me to a special needs group, mom's group. And I was like, well, my son has nothing to do with her son, but why don't I try? Like, I was just sort of like, it's been, you know, four or five years since I've tried this. Why don't I just try? I went and that woman ended up kind of dropping out pretty fast. But there was one woman there who had a son two years older than my my Joey, who seemed really similar. And then there were a bunch of other people who had kids who were, Joey was by far the youngest at this point, who had um, older kids, mostly autism, some Down syndrome, some other, some CP, you know, some other things. And so most of them had a very, very different child. But since they were older, they were starting to have problems that were more severe. The problems were getting bigger because the kid was getting older and they were just more complex, right? Just more complex problems out in the world. And so I stayed and it wasn't for, it was like a good couple years before I felt really, really connected to them. But I'm really, I'm really grateful that I stayed. And it's kind, it's one of those things where it's sort of like going to therapy. Like for me, I've gone to therapy a couple of times. I went because I knew I had to go. Like, you know, this is important, but I don't, I can't say that I ever felt a lot better. And so it wasn't until I started my parent coach training, they're like, remember, this isn't therapy. And I was like, well, what is therapy? And they're like, well, therapy is about healing past wounds. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I'd known that. Like we could have tried that in therapy, but that had never come up really. I don't know. I felt like it was just check-ins. Yeah, it totally was. Especially when most of the time the therapist just like really doesn't know how to meet you where you are in this situation. Yeah. And that's just the way that it is. It's not because they're terrible people. Right. So that so that never really helped me. But what did help me was the coaching. I, I, I honestly, like in a sleep deprived state, signed up for something online that I had no idea what I was doing. And then it, it turned out that it cost something. It only cost like $25. But I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't think I pushed a button. That, and, I, and I was just like, t- I was honest to God, too embarrassed to not pay the $25. <laughs> and so then I went and that's how I, I think, I don't know if this is still the title, but at one, at one point the title of my little vignette was like, a sleep deprived mom walks into a coach. It was like literally like that. It was like, that yeah. And that's, that's it. It was like, <laughs> what did I do? I didn't mean to do this. Oh my gosh, I love it. I could talk to you forever about your book, but I want people to read your book. I want everyone to buy this book. I don't even want you to, like you have to. This is one of our books, okay? This is one of our books. This will feel your heart and 
you will feel so seen. And I promise with the lists I was talking about and then the coaching that JR goes into and the service that she provides is such a resource that I don't think has been handed out in quite the way that it has been with JR's book that I think it's going to be transformational. And if anything, what you need sometimes is someone who gets it and reading this book will do that for you. And that can change the trajectory for a lot of people. I know that for a fact. I hear about it all the time. You can definitely buy the book on Amazon. You can go to your local bookstore and ask them to carry the book. You can order it through them. JR, what are other ways people can get this book and what do you want them to know? Yeah, so the easiest way right now is on Amazon, either in Kindle or paperback, and it's paperback print on demand. I also have a PDF on my website, so you can just go there and buy it. It's uh, janiereed.com. And pretty soon I'll have it on Lulu, where you can, lulu.com is a place you can buy it. And it's sort of to more, it goes to more countries there. So like Australia apparently doesn't do paperback on uh, print on demand. So yeah, that's it. And then I will be getting it out to Ingram Spark so that it can go to bookstores. And okay, I lied. You can't get it from your bookstore yet. Yeah, it, it's gonna be very soon. That's on my that's on my April list. How about an audiobook for those of us stuck in the car? Yeah, yeah, I've I am working on that. I'm like stepping through episodes. To, I I really want to read it myself. I think having it in my voice is important, even though. Like almost every other person on the planet, I don't like the sound of my recorded voice, but I, I do think that's important for it to be in my voice. And so, yeah, that'll be later this year. Awesome. I can't wait. Well, thanks so much for your contribution and thank you for sharing all of the wisdom. And I'm I'm so impressed and grateful to have you in this world with me. And same, Effie, same. What you do is just too amazing. It's so needed and so helpful. And I, I really, really really feel a kindred spirit with you. So thank you. Me too. Go check it out. It's called More of Everything. I'll have links here in our episode and check it out on Amazon and download it as soon as possible. And please send me a message, send JR a message. And I'd love to even see the stories in a snapshot on Instagram when you're finished with each vignette that really spoke to you. Please post it and and tag us in there. All right, JR, thanks. I will see you sooner than later. Great. Thanks, Effie. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!